0: Hi, I'm Josh Hammer.
1: And I'm Batya Unger sargon
0: This is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. So today we're talking about whether the Me Too movement has changed dating culture, dating mores, sexual mores, workplace interactions, basically everything that you ever want to know about three women and myself talking about conversations <laughs> that I fully anticipate might, might make me somewhere between awkward and uncomfortable, but I'm also deeply looking forward to. Um, so uh, Bhatia, why don't you uh, just uh, tell the audience who we're about to hear from?
1: We are so excited that Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovich are joining us to make Josh super uncomfortable and awkward, talking about workplace flirtation, the Me Too movement, sexual mores of, wow, I have so many questions I want to ask them, so many questions I want to hear you ask them. I'm really excited, Josh.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not going to like lie to the audience here. There are other debates we've hosted so far that I am more knowledgeable about. <laughs> there are more that I kind of feel are more in my wheelhouse. But it's, it's amazing to step out of your comfort zone. And this obviously is deeply important stuff. And you know what, Badia, I actually anticipate that I'm probably gonna agree with um, some more of what I hear than what I otherwise would have anticipated. Because that kind of is the way these podcasts always work out. We always end up agreeing more than we thought. And that's kind of the magic of Newsweek's The Debate, isn't it?
1: It absolutely is. Thank you so much for joining us again. Stay tuned for Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovich right after this break.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. So today we're talking about a subject that has really been in the news a lot over the past four years. Um, We're talking about whether the Me Too movement specifically has changed dating and dating culture. So, Bhadi, why don't you tell us who we're going to hear from today?
1: We could not be more thrilled with today's guests. We are so excited to have Jill Filipovich, an award-winning journalist and the author of OK Boomer, Let's Talk, How My Generation Got Left Behind. It's such a great title. In general, I think of Jill as somebody who I don't always agree with, but who is always so fair to all sides. I never feel like she's um, um, strawmanning my position. I just love reading everything that she writes. And we are also so excited to have Kat Rosenfield. Kat is just one of the most exciting new voices writing about gender and culture today. She's a journalist. She's a novelist. She's the author of the forthcoming book, No One Will Miss Her, and she recently wrote an amazing op-ed for us at Newsweek. Jill, Kat, welcome to the debate. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. So we're here to take a look back at the way that Me Too has changed us. Do we have new sexual mores now? Have millennials killed flirting? Has Me Too changed us? And if it has, has it changed us for the better or for the
2: worse? Jill, why don't you start? I think Me Too has changed us for the better. That doesn't mean that it has universally changed us for the better and that there are no downsides, right? But it does mean that I think we're doing an increasingly good, if imperfect, job at separating out uh, what historically we have thought of as sex and flirting and kind of normal sexual behavior, which you know, has largely kind of been defined by male need and male desire, uh, separating that out from what people actually find pleasurable and exciting and interesting. Um, and I think Me Too has been one important component of that, You know, where I, I think I would like to see us head and I do think this is happening is letting our conversations about sex, desire, uh, and w- in, including sex and, and desire in the workplace uh, be a little more, a little more nuanced, a little more reflective of uh, the tremendous variation in human behavior. Um, you know, I think where Me Too gets challenging is when we try to have these kind of hard and fast rules that we apply to every single situation when we know human experience is just much more complex. Um, but overall, I think Me Too has given women more ability to voice uh, what we don't want. And I think the next step is have women having more ability to voice what we do want, which, which is a more complicated uh, proposal. But I think Me Too has given us really valuable language and a really important framework for talking about issues of sex and power in particular.
3: Cat. I agree with a lot of what Jill said about the Me Too movement and the benefits of it. I think that one of the most important things that the Me Too movement accomplished was to kind of highlight the unfairness um, and raise important questions about how women are seen. In the workplace, in professional spheres, through a sexual lens, um, which affects you—if you, you know—if you're sexually desirable, you know that can impose a lot of pressure and a lot of unfairness. Also, if you're not desirable and you sense that that's interfering with your ability to get ahead in the workplace, that is also really unfair. That shouldn't happen. Um, and you know, I, I think that that conversation was important and should have been had, and still needs to be had. Where I think I diverge from Jill is in the the sense that me too in its sort of latter incarnation has moved in my opinion a little far in the direction of not just talking about what women rather than talking about what women want which i think would be a healthy place to go um, is to sort of demonize male sexuality and to demonize male desire as like it's, as if it's inherently predatory. Um, and I see a lot of that, not necessarily in real life, but in the, in the discourse uh, where we talk about this stuff. I think that that's seeped in a great deal to the point where it's very hard to have a conversation about this stuff without it kind of going in that direction.
0: Let me hop in there. So uh, I basically agree with literally everything that both of you have said so far. I mean, there's there's really nothing at all to disagree with here. I mean, when the Me Too movement kind of first started, from my perspective, you know, with uh, Ronan Farrow and Harvey Weinstein, kind of those first scalps that were taken down, a lot of this did seem to kind of be oriented around the workplace. Um, you know, a lot, got a lot of emphasis on the, the, the proverbial or literal casting couch in Hollywood, um, which I guess was just not spoken of for decades. And it was obviously from my perspective, an objectively good thing that people were paying their just comeuppance when these just horrible episodes were finally being aired for everyone to see. I guess my question, um, which is kind of dovetailing off of where Kat was going at the end there, is when we extend this to other realms. So, for example, you know, when this kind of all first started, I, 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 there was a Harvard Sociology Department study from three or four years ago that I think showed that like 30 to 35 percent of Women who were polled said that it was sexual harassment to be asked out on a date. Um, so uh, isn't there like a, a, a wide range here? There, there surely is a happy median between, you know, making sure people like Harvey Weinstein pay for what they have done versus not so disincentivizing men from pursuing kind of the the man-woman dance that, you know, quite literally propagates the human species, right? So, uh, you know, Jill would be would welcome any thoughts that you have on how we can kind of fine-tune what is the sweet spot that society should seek in that kind of gradation.
2: Yeah, so I'm not familiar with that study, so I can't speak to it specifically. Um, you know, but I, I often hear this response of, you know, well, Me Too has made men, you know, afraid to ask women on dates. And are you saying that, nobody can flirt in the workplace. Um, I think what a lot of feminists are asking for men to be more aware of is power dynamics you know, within the workplace and outside of it, right? And I don't, I would be surprised if a third of women actually believe that being asked out on a date is inherently harassment. I would be less surprised if, if the answer was something a little more nuanced along the lines of, you know, I think a lot of women have had the experience of, of being at work, sending out what we think are kind of no sexualized signals to, to a male colleague, but a male colleague decides, despite you know, no flirtation, no indication from our end that we're interested, uh, that he should still ask us out. Um, and at least you know, an, anecdotally, in my experience and the experience of, of many women that I've talked to... Uh, those men who are not already reading social cues very well uh, also tend don't also don't tend to take a, a clear no for an answer um, you know, or don't take a soft no for an answer. Don't understand when you're kind of politely being like, Oh, I'm busy for the next 12 weeks. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's talk next. Let's talk next year. I'm busy for next um, lifetime. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the work of being of kind of reading social cues, reading social interactions, trying to save everyone's feelings often falls on women. And I think a lot of what feminists are saying is we would like men to share a little bit more in that burden, to, to read basic social cues, to understand that when you know we're backing away, when we're giving short answers, when we're not engaging you in conversation, just because you're engaging us and you know, leaning forward into it, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that that we're interested. I, I think women in the workplace also fear and women outside of the workplace, you know, do fear that we will pay a price if we're seen as too if we're seen as rude. Uh, you know, if somebody is asking you out and that person is your superior and controls some aspect of your work life, you know, that can put women in a really difficult position. You know, As I said earlier, these hard, hard and fast rules are tough. I'm not gonna come out and say nobody should date at work. Tons of people meet at work, right? Um, it's one of the places where single adults congregate and meet each other. So I don't think we wanna have a hard bar on workplace romance. Um, but I would like to see men do a little bit more of the work of reading social cues and understanding power dynamics that are going to be inherent in any workplace, um, and just being thoughtful about how they're you know approaching the women that they work with, particularly if they're romantically interested in them.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, Cath, I mean, uh, you know, I, very little to disagree with there at face value. I'm kind of curious though if, if there's anything that you, that you disagree with if, if going a little bit beneath the surface more. I mean, I, I, I guess my question to you would be. Um, this is this is great, but, I mean, at the same time, you know, we literally need to propagate the human species, and, like, men need to be able to pursue dating, right? I mean, like, uh, we have a demographic crisis in this country, 1.72, 1.71, roughly, um, uh, children per woman bearing household, or uh, whatever the proper term is. I'm not a demographer. Um, how do we make sure that men do not uncomfortably avoid pursuing family, basically?
3: I think that's a difficult question. I mean, as we were talking about, you know, the the necessity is still of well, I mean, I suppose it's not necessary anymore. And this is part of the problem with this conversation, not this conversation that we're having now, but the overall conversation about it, Um, that it's now possible to not engage with people in person to not approach people in person. um, Because we have these apps that sort of transformed the way that we well, that we do everything, the apps change the way we order pizza, um, and also change the way that we date. And I think that because this is available, it has contributed not, you know, in not in Jill's um, telling, which was very reasonable, but I've seen amongst women a little bit younger than me, you know, who who see that the apps are available as as this means of dating, to kind of take it a step further and to say because this is available, there's something wrong with approaching somebody in person. Like it's it's maybe inherently creepy to see somebody who you think you've sparked an attraction with, you know, to test the waters, to approach them, to ask them out or to flirt with them. And um, as so much conversation and so much interaction is happening through the intermediary of a screen, as opposed to in person, uh, men are having unfortunately a lot less practice at reading the the in-person social cues, which is a skill that you develop over time, um, you know, from from youth on up, to understand when you're being given a soft no. So I think that the the way that the environment is surrounding dating right now, and the introduction of smartphones and dating apps and these other ways to meet, um, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's making that proposition any easier. I think it's you know it's making it a lot harder. It's sort of driving us in the other direction.
1: So let me ask you something, Kat. I want to pick up on something Jill said and put it a little bit in a more vulgar way than Jill ever would. (laughs) But I I, want to ask you, okay, I could see somebody saying, um, you know, well, let's say a woman tries the soft no and the man doesn't pick up on the cue, you know, well, isn't the responsibility on her to sort of learn how to say no in a stronger way? Or, you know, there's sort of this shift where things that didn't feel aggressive or bad or non-consensual to an older generation now feel unconsensual to millennials, to a younger generation? And I guess my question would be, I mean, isn't there an argument to be made that if something makes someone feel aggressed or feel like she had a non-consensual encounter, even if there is some objective standard whereby we might say, no, that's not what non-consent is, shouldn't, shouldn't men be assuming the burden of not making women feel that way, as opposed to us saying, well, an older generation had a different standard? I mean, isn't the point not just to not rape people, but to not make people feel like they've been raped, or, right? Something along those lines. What, what, what do you make of that? Um,
3: I mean, I know that it's, it's difficult for women to assert themselves. We are socialized, I I mean, I'm not sure that this is as true as it used to be, but we're socialized to be people pleasers. We're socialized not to rock the boat, to let somebody down easy, you know, to to preserve their feelings. Giving a hard no is hard. Uh, It's also necessary. And the fact that giving a hard no or being assertive in a lot of different ways, it's not just in dating. I mean, millennials are very nervous about making a phone call where they have to, they, ordering a pizza by phone is very freaky to a lot of millennials. Um, the fact that that makes them anxious is, I mean, it's legitimate. It's a true feeling that they have. Should we be adjusting all of our norms accordingly and saying like, if you're a pizza place that doesn't have an online ordering system and people have to call you on the phone, are you doing something that's like, that's that's so aggressive that it should be stigmatized? Um, I think that you know trying to move the norms in this in this direction to say like anytime a woman is made to feel uncomfortable as you know more and more things are making us feel uncomfortable um that's probably an error especially because it's not as though all of this you know Interaction intermediated by screens is necessarily having a good impact on us mental health wise. I mean, the generation that's nervous about ordering pizza by phone um, or nervous about being asked out in public is also suffering overall from like the highest rates of anxiety and depression, you know, generationally that we've ever seen. So I don't know if you know I don't know if there's really like a firm answer in here, but it seems like if moving in that direction would exacerbate that trend of mental health problems rather than um, moving it back in the other direction, that maybe it's something we should look at more carefully.
0: Let's let's hop into a quick break here. Um, before the the listeners chew me out too much, I did give the caveat that I'm not a demographer, but uh, it's not woman-bearing household. Of course, it would be ch- child-bearing household. So let me just get that <laughs> that, that correction to my previous comment. In. But on that note, let's take a quick break. This is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We'll, we'll be back on the other side. This is a episode on Me Too, whether it's changed dating. We have Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovich. We'll be right back on the other side. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. Today we have on Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovich. We are talking about whether the Me Too movement has changed dating, dating mores, sexual mores, and all of that juicy and exciting stuff. Um, so, uh, Jill, I, to, I, want, I want to take it to you. So, you know, when this whole movement kind of started, um, really kind of took off in earnest in 2017. Um, I, I'm a lawyer by background. I had graduated law school in 2016, actually, um, it, during kind of the whole Brett Kavanaugh confirmation fight. I was actually a federal law clerk on a federal appellate court at the time, so it kind of uh, felt, um, uh, it, it was very personal to me to an extent, not that I obviously had gone through what he had gone through, but uh, was, as a person working for a judge, I was looking at it from a very different perspective. Um, I guess my question is, is it kind of about due process? Um, and, you know, due process obviously is kind of a constitutional term. It doesn't necessarily apply to society. Like lawyers are usually very sloppy about this. Right. But like it's it's true that like this kind of general social norm of presumption of innocence has been a thing. Right. in kind of Anglo-American society for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I, 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 and you know, I, I don't want to presume your position at all, but like, I, I guess I would, be, I would be curious for your thoughts on whether kind of the hashtag "believe all women," presumption of guilt, paradigm shift is taking it too far, or if that's a necessary correction to what the status quo ante was.
2: Well, it's funny. I, I think the hashtag initially was "believe women," and then it got kind of recast as "believe all women" from people who think wanted to frame it in the, in the worst light possible. You know, I don't think the argument from feminists generally from people that have thought about these issues for a long time was no woman ever lies about anything ever ever right um it was more you know believe as a baseline believe women the same way that as a baseline we believe men and that's something that i think is important that doesn't mean you know believe against all evidence to the contrary Um, you know i think trust but verify is a very good standard for journalists to have um, you know, when it comes to due process, I think that is, in the Me Too debate, a really important issue and something that has, um, I think, often gotten pushed to the side because it can, it can be a bit inconvenient. Um, and this is where I probably don't represent the, the mainstream feminist position super well. Um, but I think, you know, in, in terms of disciplinary processes, whether that is a criminal court, whether that is a Title IX proceeding... Um, I do think due process is obviously a crucial component of these claims. Uh, I, I think the way that these claims are adjudicated on college campuses is often really, really terrible. Um, and due process norms are not appropriately and uh, effectively enforced. I think that is a, a really, really big problem. And that could be its own kind of separate podcast. Um but when it comes to general discussion, so when there's no uh, mechanism for for penalty, right? When we're talking about women just telling their stories in public, um, you know, I think publications certainly have an obligation to verify claims against a specific or identifiable person. I think they have an obligation to uh, print those claims in a way that's responsible. You know, I think we perhaps all remember the Aziz Ansari story that was published by babe.net, which I think was like an example of exactly what not to do in reporting these stories. Um, But I don't think you want to go so far on the presumption of innocence, which I think is obviously a a really crucial baseline norm, both in criminal courts uh, and just in, in general, to say that women shouldn't be able to tell their stories unless they can make a claim that would stand up in a court of law, right? And this, you know, this is again, like really, really difficult landscape to traverse. And a lot of it is about individual judgment calls. Um, but I think you do wanna have a space where women can talk about what has happened to them or a woman's word, you know, is itself enough evidence um, not to convict someone, right? Not to kick someone out of college, um, but to just allow her to speak and tell her story without immediately being pilloried. And you know, I, I think things like the Believe Women hashtag—that's what they were trying to get at—was that so many women live with these stories, keep them secret, only tell them around a small group of people. And part of what Me Too did was create a space where women could could just say, "This happened to me too," right? This is also a reality that I have lived, and there is power in women sharing those stories in mass. I, th- I think it does uh, kind of shine a light on what is really, unfortunately, a, a pretty common and not universal, but, but pretty close to universal female experience. I think you can do that without undermining norms of due process and innocence until proven guilty, you know, if you're doing it away. And again, that is about kind of a public outpouring of women's voices. Um, and you're not getting into the stage of creating penalties. I think once you're in that stage, then due process norms have to apply, obviously.
1: So Jill, your book is actually a, it's a a really interesting materialist look at millennials who are often sort of caricatured in a very cultural light. You kind of say, no, like the, the question of millennials is how little wealth they've been able to amass, their precarity from a materialist point of view. And I wanted to ask you two questions about that. The first is, Is there a connection between that and the the changing sexual mores around Me Too, the difference between millennials and older generations? And I also wanted to ask you to talk about the kind of materialist angle of the Me Too movement, how it did seem a little bit to be um, about a certain kind of woman's experience. You know, we didn't really hear a lot about factory women, you know, who are harassed all the time, much more probably than, you know, we are in our white collar jobs. So I would love for you to answer those two questions.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, connecting sort of the millennial uh, material challenges to our cultural outlook—I mean, I think—is a big part of the story that often doesn't get discussed, right? So, as a generation that is never going to do as well as our parents, uh, we <laughs> can't afford housing. Our jobs are more precarious. Our income is is less steady. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways we look at we look at the workplace very differently because we don't see work as a place Mm -hmm. that is ever taking care of us. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very different, I think, than our parents or certainly than my parents um, who very much, you know, stayed in their same workplaces for decades on end and had some loyalty to them and felt like it was a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, I think given that, yeah, millennials do expect more out of work. I think we, we sort of think, well, you know, if we're not going to get all of the benefits from work that our parents got, we at least want work to be sane. Um, you know, We want it to be a place, one thing that you re- get out of a lot of studies on millennials and work is that we're willing to make less money if the place that we're working at uh, holds some meaning for us, right? if it's aligned with us ideologically. Not necessarily that it's like working at a nonprofit, but that we feel like our employer reflects back at us our, our values, which tend to be for millennials, progressive political values. Um, so, it makes sense to me that we would also expect our workplaces to reflect and reinforce, uh, you know, kind of changing norms around sexual harassment and how millennial women, who, you know, are a majority of college graduates, uh, feel that we should be treated in the workplace. Um, so, I, I do think that those two things are connected. And you had a second question that I've now forgotten
1: the materialist critique of Me Too that it was really focused on, you know, white collar women.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of that was the fact that the initial outpouring of Me Too was focused on very prominent men, right? So mm-hmm. focused on, folk, like, Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I think is really cool about how Me Too has gone uh, is that even those very prominent women, you know, who started groups like Time's Up, um, people like uh, America Ferrera uh, and a few others, you know, they did pull in, you know, they pulled in um, – oh, I'm now blanking on her name, but the woman who organizes domestic workers and runs the Domestic Workers Alliance. um, They focus the Time's Up legal defense Fund on helping women who do work working class jobs, right, blue collar and pink collar jobs. Um, So I don't think it's quite fair to say that women who are not in the white collar workforce are being neglected by this movement. But I do think it's absolutely true that their stories have not been nearly as resonant are not the stories that we think about when we think about the sort of premier Me Too stories. Um, I think A, that's because the men that they're accusing are not famous or particularly interesting. And I think, too, that is because there is, in many of those jobs, almost an expectation of harassment. We don't find it interesting. I think that um, speaks very poorly of of, of kind of the American public um, and what we expect women to endure. But, you know, it does, I think, to a degree feel like, okay, the waitress at the diner is sexually harassed. This is almost this is so normal um, that we don't have the kind of shocking language to talk about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And Kat, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, your your view is actually quite countercultural. the the I, the sh- cultural shift was very rapid and very totalizing, and the sort of. If I, if I could summarize your position, a kind of feminist pushback to feminist excess today. I don't know, you can tell me if that's accurate or not. Um, but that is a, a countercultural position right now and one that um, is often gets its own sort of forms of pushback. I'm wondering um, where were your views forged? Did you have um, a change of heart? Was there a time when you felt differently about these issues? Or, you know, from as far back as you can remember, did you have a sense of, you know, that there was a potential for excess in the feminist movement that one needed to be wary of?
3: Gosh, Uh, well, I was raised by a second wave feminist mom um, Mm -hmm. who really imbued me with, you know, those values. Um, What I think is now, I mean, it's a feminism that's very emphatic about women's empowerment and women's agency um, and women as, you know, as people, as as complete people, um, autonomous human beings with all of the good and all of the bad things that that implies. Um, I think that the thing that bothers me about a lot of the feminist conversation now and, and you know, where you've identified me as pushing back is that A lot of it strikes me as disempowering and paternalistic and very focused on protecting women in a way that suggests that we're not fully human, uh, not, you know, not fully capable. Um, I think that one of the things, you know, centered on the Me Too movement um, and the way we've seen the Me Too movement start to kind of move from discussing stuff that happens in the workplace to just stuff that happens between men and women like in dating scenarios um and the aziz ansari thing was a good example of that um what happened to jack smith was a good example of this where you know it wasn't about any more what was happening in the workplace it was just basically this guy was a, a bad date or a bad boyfriend um that a lot of this i'm trying to think about this we had this moment maybe 20 years ago where it suddenly became you know like slut shaming was basically, or we wanted to say that it was over. It was fine for women to hook up and to have casual sex. And we had this culture. Um, And I think what we're seeing now in feminism is in some ways a backlash to this because a lot of women ended up making decisions, autonomous decisions, decisions that were their own, but that didn't make them happy. And I think we're very uncomfortable with that as a culture. We're really cool with the idea, like, yeah, women, you know, rah-rah, women are empowered, women can make their own choices. When one of those choices results in regret, you know, and or shame, um, we're very much less comfortable with that. We're like, no, we have to protect women from, you know, from feeling this way. And I think that that's landed us in a place where, yeah, there's a lot of this sort of paternalistic stuff going on where there's this default to imagining that women never really want to be in a relationship, never really want to have sex, you know, all of, all of that stuff flows downstream from there.
0: I want to ask a question that just kind of builds off like, personal couple trips I've taken. So one weird thing about me is that I'm actually a bit of a Japanophile. I love Japan. I I find Japanese society so fascinating. And I've been there numerous times. And um, dating and sex life in Japan um, is uh, worse than terrible. It's like like among the worst and kind of like the... Uh, Not the Western world by definition, but kind of like the, you know, uh, the first world nation uh, world, so to speak. Um, You know, I don't know exactly what their birth rates are, but they're extremely low. There is virtually no dating. Marriage rates have never been lower, I think, in Japanese history. Um, in Japan, they literally in Tokyo, where, where I've been numerous times, they, they literally have cuddle bars where people like can basically go pay to to cuddle with another human being. It's very profoundly sad, actually. Um, it, it like from kind of like an American perspective, it almost makes you want to weep. Um, I guess um, I, you know my question. We could start with with you, Jill. Um, what kind of concrete steps? Um, and we've already touched on this a little bit. but Let's just kind of unpack it a little more. What kind of like concrete steps? can we do to make the progress that I think a lot of um, the Me Too movement has made? I think everyone here agrees, you know, like the Harvey Weinstein stuff, Ron Farrow, like two thumbs up, like oh, those people should absolutely pay. Uh, work, you know, workplace mores, um, you know, sensitive stuff. How can we take that progress, but prevent going down the road of places like Japan, frankly?
2: So I, I definitely cannot pretend to be an expert in Japanese culture, sexual or otherwise. Um, but you know it's, what strikes me about what you're observing and, and that question is a lot of this assumes that earlier sexual mores were somehow uh, kind of naturally occurring <laughs> events, right? And that now is, is the sort of human-made deviation. Um, and I'm not sure that that's totally true. I, I think a lot of what uh, I would imagine is animating some of that distance between men and women in Japan is both changing norms around women and power and women and work, and men who are a lot slower to catch up. <clears throat> and I think we see that in the U.S. as well, that you know part of what does fuel a lot of discord within marriages, part of what fuels divorce, part of what fuels um the trend of, of a lot of women not getting married in the first place and having children before marriage or having children outside of marriage entirely you know is this feeling of I can't find a partner who's going to pull his own weight fairly. Um, I think one of the great accomplishments of feminism in the U.S. has been to give women many, many more opportunities and to really open up ways in which women can be women uh, that don't adhere to traditional ideas of what of, of femininity, right? And I think that has been opened far less up for men. And so I think there's this 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 huge gap between where women have come and what we expect, and what men expect and how men behave. And I I do think that fuels, you know, certainly in the U.S. I would imagine <laughs> in Japan as well, uh, some of these some of these gaps. Um, you know, this is going back a bit to what Kat touched on in terms of. In terms of dating, you know, and, and can we separate Me Too and sort of workplace harassment from sexual interactions uh, in, in, in dating and kind of purely romantic settings? You know, I, I agree I would like to see the, the dating and romantic stuff not necessarily put under the umbrella of Me Too, but I think that's a universe that we're also really bad at talking about. I think there's often a default assumption that, you know, men can seek out pleasure in those situations. Uh, and many men don't come into especially casual dating relationships uh, and casual sex, assuming that they need to also share pleasure with their partner. Um, and I think a lot of women are now kind of pushing back on that. Maybe not in the moment with those men, but you know, privately thinking, "Well, okay, I've I, you know, I I can frame this as this was just bad sex." But like, why are so many women having such bad sex so often when it's casual, and so many men aren't? You know, why is there that difference in what we assume we come into that interaction owing the other person? Why do men, so many men feel like they owe women so little if the, if the interaction is casual? Um, and I think a lot of women like me would say, you know, that it doesn't have to be that way, right? Like we're human beings, we are animals, <laughs> we create the society we live in and we create our own norms we are also very capable of understanding and reading these really subtle body cues, right, without having to verbalize yes or no. Um, Not saying we shouldn't verbalize yes or no more often, we probably should, but I I think a lot of the discussion and particularly um, the sort of more conservative side of this discussion tends to frankly infantilize men and treat men as if they're less capable of reading social cues, being decent uh you know and 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 frankly catching up to what where women are and what women tend to offer men which is a great deal of of thought and empathy and focus on their pleasure and focus on their needs and wants and i think a lot of women now that we're able to make our own money and don't need to be married in order to uh you know have children in a socially acceptable way and build our families um look around at a lot of men around them and think, well, you know, if, if this guy isn't going to be helping out financially, if this guy isn't helping out materially in the household, if he's not connecting emotionally, um, what am I doing? Uh, and I think some of that discussion can be very messy and spills out into, for example, the Aziz Ansari story, which was like a hot mess in every direction. Um, you know, but to me, the kind of the, the, the fundamental nut of that was was you know that there's something more here than just bad sex that women either regret or should have to tolerate. Um, and that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. Um, but I guess the, the sort of short answer is there's a huge difference between where women, how women have internalized feminist progress and how men have. I think that contributes to a lot of discord. I think you see that in marriage rates, in childbearing rates. And I think you see that in a lot of the difficulty that young people have dating.
0: No, that was fantastic. And it actually kind of, it, it almost excites me because it reminds me that there is some unusual kind of Venn diagram overlap here. And I'm going to kick it to you, Kat, to get your feedback on this. But especially since you mentioned, Kat, that you know you were raised by a proud second wave feminist. But there, there really is some kind of unusual overlap here between kind of Um, feminists and, uh, you know, proverbially speaking, my kind of people, like the social conservative right. I mean, people, you know, people in the social conservative right, I think oftentimes look at kind of like the 1960s and the proliferation of hookup culture and kind of, you know, the one night stands on the university campus. Um a lot of social conservatives uh, obviously kind of take that to its logical conclusion and kind of you know criticize the the pill and um, the uh, you know plan B and things of that nature as well. Um, I, I, I'd be curious how you would react um, to to that line of thought as to whether kind of um, hookup culture, so to speak, um, how much that actually is to blame for a lot of what we're talking about here, kind of our modern day woes, visa visa me too, and you know workplace aggression, toxic masculinity, et cetera.
3: Yeah, you know, I think that they're definitely connected. I think that a lot of what we're seeing right now that some people would term like the feminist excesses of Me Too or whatever, um, are in part of a backlash to the hookup culture of the 90s and like the early 2000s where it turned out that, that, you know, liberating us in that way to have casual encounters also came with a set of pratfalls that nobody necessarily anticipated. And, you know, I think that a lot of what we're seeing now, as we we sort of impose this power and privilege framework on a lot of the discussions surrounding, um, you know, what can go awry between men and women, there's this presumption sometimes that, um, you know, because of like you know, 3,000 years of patriarchy, every time a woman and a man come together in a romantic context, she's automatically at a disadvantage because you know all of this contextual baggage is coming in. Everything, every bad thing that men have ever done to women throughout history is coming in. And, um, you know, it it creates this tense, I mean, basically irresolvable situation. It's it's. I mean, and because of the way we talk about power as invalidating consent, you can reach a place at the extremes where the idea is that there's really no such thing as like a consensual heterosexual pairing because the woman is at such a disadvantage that she can't really meaningfully say that she wants to be involved in this relationship. Um, So I think that like what you see is this as we've moved away from really formal courtship, really formal dating and like, you know, a lot of pressures to not engage casually with each other sexually. um, What we've lost in the liberation is the rules and the structure that made people feel safe. And a lot of what we see now in terms of the way we talk about things like Me Too or things like consent is an attempt to impose a new set of rules that make people feel like they're emotionally safe in these situations. But I don't think it's working that well, because the way we talk about consent at the moment makes it seem like sex is actually incredibly dangerous and incredibly risky in a way that, you know, it, it makes it unclear why anybody would ever actually want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, you want to respond to that?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I, I do think we are in this a transitionary moment and that a lot of the ways we talk about these issues are imperfect. Um, you know, I, 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 the old sexual rules, I think, were so incredibly stifling and created... Um, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this, but the, the penalty for breaking them was extremely high, right? And there was not a lot of sympathy if something bad happened to a woman who broke the rules. And I, I don't also think the rules were always as clear as we're assuming they are. I think often they they change, you know, depending on who was making a claim to wrongdoing. Um, So I, I think that the the shifts in expectations and norms around sex are getting much better. Um, I do think talking about consent is important. I think the way we talk about it is often not the best. Um, but the idea that consent is something more than just an absence of no, that sex should be mutually pleasurable, that sex should be fun for everyone involved, um, is, is a positive shift. I mean, I agree with you, Kat, that a lot of the ways you talk about consent can be very fear-based, uh, and that is not a great way to do it. But I think if you listen to, you know, Jacqueline Friedman is one woman who's written quite a bit about this. And the way she talks about consent is very much focused on sex as a mutual pleasure. And I think moving to that frame, that that's the baseline expectation, would put us in a, in a much better position than where we are now.
0: Okay, so let, let's take a, another quick break here. Um, we'll, we're turning on the, on the other side. We've got Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovic are talking about whether the Me Too movement has changed dating dating mores and all of that So again this is newsweeks the debate podcast we'll be right back on the other side welcome back to newsweeks the debate so um let's let's dive right in here for our final segment so you know one thing that um made a lot of headlines i guess kind of maybe kind of early stage me too you might say was um the so-called uh mike pence rule um now uh Full disclosure, it's not something that I personally uh, abide by. Um, it is uh, not something, frankly, that a lot of my friends necessarily abide by. But I, I, I guess, um, from my perspective, I was just a little curious at the extent of the pushback that this got at the time. I, I, I guess there seems to be somewhat of an intellectual tension going on here. If on the one hand, you know, masculinity is so toxic um, that it really has to be like cabined and contained... And then on the other hand, someone is kind of publicly going out of his way to saying that he is putting kind of layers and layers of protection to contain it, um... I, I guess I don't really understand why there was such kind of vitriol when this happened.
1: The Mike Pence rule was Mike Pence came out and said that he would not have dinner alone with a woman even in a work-related environment to protect his marriage, something along those lines, right, Josh?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, like behind closed doors, um, something. Yeah, yeah. There's layers of layers concept. There's actually kind of, uh, kind of a <laughs> quick tangential point. There's actually a lot of that in kind of Talmudic Judaism, actually, But uh, I, which is I, I kind of how I saw it happening in, in real time. But in any event, like I said, I don't personally abide by this rule, but I was just I was just kind of uh, baffled by the extent of the vitriol when it kind of came out there. So I would just be curious for your thoughts on that, Jill.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I would say that if you're hearing the term toxic masculinity and what you're hearing is that men are inherently toxic or masculinity is inherently toxic, I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what feminists mean when we use that phrase. You know, sort of feminism 101, uh, is the idea that masculinity femininity are are things that we culturally create right they look different in different cultures um the role of men how men express themselves how women express themselves how we differentiate between men and women those things look really really different across time history culture place right so you know the degree to which what's what's biological, what is social, is obviously a very a, a messy and complicated one. Um, but a lot of what we consider kind of natural for men and women are things that we have put on them. And so I think what what feminists would argue is that you know there is nothing inherently um, predatory or misogynist or cruel about men existing in the world. Right? Like I don't think male babies are born. <laughs> You know, destined to turn into sexual har- harassers or rapists or whatever, you know, or men who express "quote unquote" toxic masculinity. Not a phrase I personally love. Um, I think what feminists are saying is that there's cultural structures, norms, expectations, ways in which men are raised differently. Boys are raised differently than girls. Uh, that creates some men who behave quite badly toward women. The reason the Mike Pence thing. I think, felt so offensive to a lot of feminists, myself included, is that, you know, I think mean, he w- he's buying into this frame that, you know, men essentially can't help themselves. And so the only way to protect women is to separate the two genders out. I, I think feminists historically have not really bought that. I think what we've said is you know, men are, are perfectly capable of treating women as equals. Men are perfectly capable of being decent. You know, This idea that men are inherently predator, predatory and aggressive, uh, that women are inherently tempting in a way that makes men unable to control themselves, I mean, that's a very reactionary conservative position. Feminists are trying to say the opposite. The Mike Pence rule, I think, was also so... Uh, enraging to a lot of women because it, it essentially meant that female employees of Mike Pence are never going to get the kind of benefits that male employees will, right? They're never going to get the kind of one on one mentorship. They are never going to have his ear privately because they can't be in a private setting with him. That, you know, it meant that Mike Pence, as, as a boss, as somebody who is in charge of a diverse workforce and including uh, in charge of women, is putting those female employees at a professional disadvantage because of a view that essentially says, I can't control myself around women, you know, which also suggests to me that there's something like kind of a bit wrong with him. <laughs> if he can't be in a room with a woman and like, you know, not lose his mind, I mean, that's just, that's a him problem, that's not an us problem. And to me, that suggests that, okay, well, if Mike Pence really can't do that, he probably shouldn't be the vice president of the United States. He probably shouldn't be in charge of much of anything if simply being in a room alone with a woman is, you know, is such a threat to him and to his marriage.
1: It's so interesting, Jill, you always manage to sort of make things sound so much more nuanced and like give us like a real insight into how people are talking about things. Um, Kat, I want to give it over to you, but I, I, I do just want to, I think something Josh has been pointing to throughout, which is really interesting to me is there is, I, I do feel a sense of a kind of new kind of puritanism Among millennials, even more so among Gen Z, there does seem to be like um, a a kind of aversion to the things that we thought were yummy and delicious about being in the world as sexual agents. Not all the time, but I, I do feel that there is something happening when I talk to younger people and they talk about dating or about sex. I just can't recognize Anything they're saying as sort of being human feelings, and Kat, you've written about this. I wonder if if you can talk about this. Do you, do, is the, am I right? Is there a new Puritanism that's taking over? And if so, like, is, is there going to be essentially a, a, a
3: horseshoe at some point on sex between conservatives and Gen Z? That's a good question. I mean, I think that some of the the impulse to protect women um, from the consequences of sex or from having bad sex. Does already there is already that horseshoe effect that you're seeing where you know it's it's the same paternalism just coming from a kind of a different angle. Um, I you know I wonder how much of what we're seeing is less about dating specifically and more just about wanting to discard what seems passe you know what seems old you know i mean one of the one of the interesting things that i noticed um when i made the mistake of looking at the comments on the piece that i wrote for you was a whole lot of people calling me an honorary boomer Um, you know as though i was as though i was you know trying to impress people my parents age um you know by, by betraying my own generation and I do wonder if you know some of it is just this sort of revulsion at the idea that that we might be doing things the quote unquote boomer way, which is must it has to be bad because it's boomers, right? Um, I think that maybe that at least partly explains this urge to look at something like dating apps, which has changed the landscape of how we connect and how you know we at least attempt to fall in love, and to say, okay, we have this new thing. And it's not enough to just have the new thing, the new option. We have to also create a stigma surrounding the old option so that it's now creepy. Um, and one of the, I mean, the the hook for this piece that I wrote for you was obviously that a, a recent survey determined that 93% of women think that flirting at work is never, ever appropriate, like under any circumstances. Um, I think that there's an interesting thing happening there, because if you laid out the data sets of people in the millennial category who sorry i've got a cat situation here um if you laid out the data sets of people in the millennial category who say that they would never want to be flirted at work and then the data set of people who have actually dated somebody at the workplace and you put a venn diagram you would have an overlap there between people who are saying one thing and doing another and I don't think that's because the people who say that they never want to be flirted with at work and then subsequently date somebody at work are lying I think they just you know they just don't know themselves very well in the way that human beings rarely know themselves um, and so what you have is this, that response that I would never want to be flirted at work comes less from like a genuine shift in what people want and more from a shift in what people perceive they're supposed to say they want. And that's where I think you know we have right now and there are things happening in the culture that make it trendy to say, I would never want to flirt with somebody at work. I would never want to date somebody in this old school way. I would never want to form an organic connection with somebody, you know, who I met at a party or a bar or whatever. Um, and that that's not necessarily playing out in real life. I'm, I, I'm not ready to get on board with the, you know, and so flirting is dead and dating has changed forever. I think we're just in a, a weird little kind of flexi moment where people are saying this and whether it comes to pass is going to, you know, still remains to be seen.
1: All right. We got to let you guys go. I have two more questions that I absolutely have to ask you just because I'm dying of curiosity. But let's do them quickly. So I want to ask just flirting at work. Yes or no. Is it OK? Is it not OK?
3: Cat, um, I'm married to somebody I met at work. So I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs> that under the proper circumstances, it is OK.
2: Jill? Yes. Yeah, circumstance dependent, I would say. Um, and, you know, on, I think, Usually, the more senior person at work, whether that's a man or a woman, <laughs> to, to be thoughtful, uh, yes, ab- about that interaction. All right, great! That's such good depends.
1: news. This is this yeah. is great
3: news. I'm so. I really excited kind to hear of this. baited the hook there by saying that you know my relationship was a workplace <laughs> romance. You, know, you can't say it's weird now without <laughs> without offending me.
0: We always find more agreement on this podcast than we think it's we're going to. It's right true. It's
3: right true. All right. So, final
1: question to you both. Um, I've been thinking about, you know, your answers to all these questions, and they're also nuanced. And I wonder if the real disagreement between you two is about what the end goal is, is the end goal to maximize to the extent that we can to zero the amount of discomfort women feel in sexual encounters is is like, is, the, is that the real disagreement that, Jill, you think that that is the goal? And Kat, you think that's not necessarily the goal, that some level of discomfort is okay because women are human and empowered. So I, what I want is for you both to answer the question, you know, what is the future of feminism? What do women still need? What do you hope for American society when it comes to sex, dating, workplace, more AIDS in 10, 20 years? What is it that you are hoping for? What is the goal for you? So let's start with you, Jill.
2: So, my goal would be to maximize pleasure uh, and maximize fairness. And you know, I think where we are right now is in a situation where women take certainly most of the physical risk of sex, right? Um, and often wind up for a whole complicated set of reasons shouldering a lot of the emotional risk. Not all of it. That doesn't mean men shoulder no risk at all. Um, They certainly do, certainly emotionally. But I I, I think there's a baseline expectation that women will just shoulder more of this, and that's just how sex works. And women can either regret it or they can say they're empowered and they're not going to, you know, it's, it's going to be fine. I would like the word empowerment to just die for ever <laughs> and ever. Um, but I would like, I think in, in a universe in which we maximize female sexual pleasure and we maximize uh, kind of social fairness, right? I think we inherently decrease the kind of, you know, discomfort, pain, distress that women often experience around sex and around sexual harassment. I I think those two things kind of go together. But to me, the best way to do that is not necessarily to hyper-focus on the distress, but instead to focus on, okay, what can we do to maximize the good things about sex and the way that women want to be treated and you know how I think men should kind of shift the way that they behave, not, hashtag not all men, but that many men should shift the way that they uh, consider these issues, the way that they even think about sex itself and what it means to have sex with someone and what obligations they owe that person to be much more kind of mutually pleasure centric. I think that would get us quite far uh, in decreasing many of these harms. Kat?
3: So I very much agree with with basically everything that Jill said. So um, I guess I'm just gonna kind of yes and her. (laughs) Yeah, you know, maximizing pleasure is a is a great, I think, place to try to center this. I think also part of that conversation is to encourage resilience, especially in women. Right now, the way that we talk about sex, um, I mean, younger people are, are receiving the message that sex is incredibly dangerous, incredibly risky. It's basically, you know, you're doing this and you're always a heartbeat away from something terrible happening, Um, especially if you're a woman. It's like you lose focus in this game for one second and you're going to be violated (laughs) and that's it, you know, and then it's over and you're never going to be the same. And I mean, number one, that's not really true, um, but it's, it's also a harmful thing to tell people. Nobody is going to be having pleasurable encounter under those circumstances, because they're coming at it fearfully, you know, thinking they have to be vigilant. Um, I also think the focus on discomfort, um, especially the equation of discomfort with trauma, is uh, something that's happened in, you know, in the culture that we should try to move away from, because it's getting in the way of us, you know, engaging in trusting, healthy intimacy with each other. Um, Right now, there's this message out there that if at any moment during a sexual encounter, you're suddenly uncomfortable, which is to say you're anything less than completely enthusiastic and gung-ho about what's going on, it means that you're being violated. It means that something really, really bad is happening to you. Um, Again, it makes it very difficult for people to connect and for people to trust each other in an intimate moment. And I think maybe more importantly, Comfort is not what we should be striving for in sex. If the best thing you can say about your sex life is that it's comfortable, then, you know, that's, that's, you you know, you're missing out on a lot. And a lot of experiences worth having, um, some of our most valuable and exciting experiences, are actually exciting because they're uncomfortable, because they're exhilarating. They're something beyond comfortable. They're exhilarating or they're challenging or they're thrilling and you're sort of walking this knife's edge between what is scary and what is exciting. And as long as you stay on the right side, you have an amazing time. So by focusing on comfort, we exclude everything beyond that in a way that I think, you know, makes people scared and is, is costing them the chance to experience something wonderful.
1: Wow. Kat, Jill, what an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you both so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for, Thanks having, for us.
0: having us. Kat Rosenfield and Jill Filipovich. Uh, it was a pretty exhilarating and uh, lively discussion uh, if, if I don't say so myself as a token dude in in, in <laughs> um, among <laughs> us here I, I certainly I certainly learned a lot um, you know just a friendly reminder to subscribe to Newsweek's The Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, R19 wherever you get your podcasts leave us uh, the best review that you possibly can give us and we hope you tune in next week I'm Josh Hammer
1: and I'm Batya Sargon. We'll see you next time